chapter 17. If I, if we, we're studying through a book, the book of Revelation, that tells about the end of all things. It's pretty amazing that the last book in the Bible would tell about the end of all things, right? Kind of not surprising. And just like the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis tells about the beginning of all things. But as we're looking and studying through these events and things that are to come that, 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 that tell us about the end of all things, I would be remiss if I wasn't to bring to you through this um, events that are taking place right now before our very eyes in fulfillment of prophecy that shows us that the times that we're living in is in fact these times when the end of all things are coming to pass before us in this generation that you and I are a part of today. It's pretty exciting. And in Isaiah chapter 17, there's a prophecy that <coughs> is pretty unique. And I want to read just a few verses to you. And and in verse 1, it says, The burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. And it goes on from there just to explain some things. But that was a prophecy given by the prophet Isaiah. And can anybody tell me when Damascus, which is located in the country of what? When was it ever destroyed? When has it ever been decimated and laid waste? Has it ever? Never. So we know that this is a prophecy that's still yet to come, and when you read through and study this, you see that it's, that it's, a, it's a prelude or it's one of the key signs. You've heard people say, keep your eyes on Damascus. Because when you, when you, when you see, if you see this thing happen, you're going to know that you're in the midst of some of the things that we're reading about here in the book of Revelation. I don't know if we'll be here for that. Um, I don't suspect that we will. And that even comes to this, this additional point that I want to make. This week, two significant things happened on the global scene regarding Syria and Damascus. Anybody tell me what's going on in Syria right now? What? The other is refugees is one of the things. But the reason why is because there's been a vicious civil war going on in Syria. And, and the president, if you want to call him that, Assad, who is an evil evil man has been killing his own people, and, and um, what we know is that we have been taking refugees, we've stopped doing that, but as of this week, our president has announced that he would take another 10,000 refugees out of Syria. Now, why is that significant? Because that shows us that, that shows Syrian Assad and those who are for Syrian Assad that we are clearly against them and what's going on. Now, why is that significant? Because Russia and Assad have formally come out, and we've kind of known this for a little while, um, but Russia has been advising Assad or Syria uh, through this, um, this civil war with military, with a little bit of military support. It's not been really out there, but uh, Russia has formally this week announced or confessed, if you whatever you want to do, that they have been assembling ground troops in Assyria and to support the, that, the regime of Assad. So that puts us in opposition. And let me tell you something about Putin. Putin doesn't fight for anybody but himself. And, and, and Russia wants to come down into the Middle East because 
because um, on, on, there's a huge benefit to them with all of the oil reserves that in there that Russia needs, especially if they're going to be waging a war. Now, I talked to you last week as we were studying through the first part of the book of chapter 6 that there's going to be a war, right? And in that war, Gog, the armies of the north, are going to come down and battle against Israel. Let me tell you something. With Russia announcing that they have forces now in Assyria, armed forces to fight along Assad, there's a greater thing happening. And you're starting to see the stage really, really beset. I mean, it's like a chess game, and the pieces are all in position and in and fulfillment for the things that we're reading about in the book of Revelation and these other prophecies that tie together. They're they're coming to pass. Now, when these exact wars are going to break out, I don't know. Those are things that we're not told about, but we're told that these things are going to happen. And the awesome thing about it is, is we can trust that what the Bible tells us is true about these things because there are many other things that the Bible has prophesied about that have already come to pass. And even in these future end-time things that, there are, that they are now coming to pass before our very eyes. All right, that's kind of a little side note to hopefully get you excited about our study and to get you serious about your own walk and relationship with the Lord and understand that we need to keep our eyes lifted to heaven because ultimately the one that we're looking for is a Savior, is a Redeemer, is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is coming to take us to be with Him for those of us who have put our faith in Him. And as we move back to chapter 6 now, if you look there in the book of Revelation, we're going to... We're going to be picking back up, I think, in verse uh, 7. Yeah, but before we get there, I, I, want to, I want to point out that even though I had every intention last week of, of making it through all of chapter 6, as you know, it didn't happen. We had communion, and we got um, uh, a little bit more detail-oriented with some of the things that were there in the first uh, six verses. But we're going to finish it this morning, and since we're in the middle of this chapter, I think we need to take a few minutes <clears throat> to reset the stage so that we get some context for what's going on. For those who weren't here, and I don't know about you, but I've slept six times since last Sunday, and um, it's hard to remember all of these things. But if you do remember, this chapter records the opening of six of the seven seals that are on the scroll that was first seen or identified to us back in chapter five. And we've been studying verse by verse chapter by chapter, and so if you've been with us, you remember the, the, the mention of this scroll first in chapter 5. And in that chapter, John reported seeing the scroll in the right hand of God who was sitting on his throne in the, in the very throne room of heaven. And he heard an angel when he saw this scroll, an angel with a, a, a strong angel said with a loud voice speaking out and saying, who is worthy to open the scroll and its seals? However, John told us, that there was none found to open the scroll or to look in it. And John responded with weeping, much weeping, we are told. And John began to weep because he understood that if the scroll, literally this title deed, the forfeited title deed of the earth, if it could not be opened, then that meant hopelessness. It meant that the earth and all that is in it could not be redeemed from the suffering that it is now under. Uh, the, the suffering that came as a result of, of the sin of man and of the curse. 
But even as John wept, we, we, seen in, we saw in that, that whole scene there back in chapter 5, with John weeping, we saw a man come forward. Someone who came forward, and John described this man to us by, by saying he looked like one who had suffered a violent death. And he took the scroll from the hand of God. And John went to describe this man, saying that, that he is the Lamb who has been slain, the, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah, and, and, and as the root of David, and all of these things revealed to us that this man is Jesus, the anointed Son of God who alone is worthy and willing to open the scroll because of his sinlessness and because of the debt that he paid to redeem what had been lost. And since the Son of God had reached out and taken the scroll from the hand of God, we read that all of heaven, in response to that, broke out in a song of praise. That all of heaven erupted in a song of praise and of worship of Jesus, the Son of God, the Lamb who had been slain, for willingly offering up His life so that the earth and all that is in it could be redeemed. So that everything that was lost could be restored. So, with the forfeited title deed, the scroll, in his hands, we read in chapter 6, verse 1, that Jesus, the Lamb of God, began to open the seals on the scroll. And last week, we looked at three of the seals being opened. And if you remember, when the first seal was opened, John saw a vision of a white horse. And on this horse was a man with a bow in his hand and a crown upon his head. And he went out, it says, conquering and to conquer. And when the second seal was opened, John saw a second horse. This horse was fiery red in color. And this horse too had a rider. And even though there was no description given of this rider on the horse, we are told that to him was given the power to take peace from the earth so that people, he said, could kill one another. Then with the opening of the third seal, there was a black horse whose rider was given permission to harm the world's food supplies, bringing forth a widespread famine across the earth. And because of these three visions, we see that with the opening of the first seal, the world is going to embrace this conqueror, this, this conquering hero, the one who brings peace. However, this hero who rides in on a white horse is a false hero. He's a deceiver. And he ends up violating the very, pre the very peace that he brings. And in doing so, we see that wars and famine and death are what follow. One last thing I need to mention, which I pointed out last week when we began this chapter, is that these events spoken of here in chapters 6 and 7, in order to keep the right context as we go through this, we need to understand what we're reading about. And as these events that are spoken of with the opening of the seven seals in chapters 6 and 7, it's really a summary account of the total seven years of tribulation. In other words, what we read here in these last, in these two chapters, what we read here in these two chapters will be told again with greater detail in verse in chapters 8 and on through 18. Now there are some who do not hold to this confession, and their thoughts are their thoughts center around this idea that the seven seals are a time of trial or a time of tribulation that proceeds 
the seven years of tribulation, that they're in addition to it, and that we, uh, the church, are going to be here during this time. And as you know, I don't hold to this consideration. And I don't hold to this consideration in light of two specific things. It's things that I mentioned last week that I want to reiterate. The first is because this book is a very Jewish book. It has over 404 Old Testament references. 404 Old Testament references or allusions in this one book. It's a very Jewish book. And in Jewish literature, it's typical for the entire story to be told in an abbreviated way before coming back to tell the whole story with greater detail in order to put the emphasis on certain events and certain characters. And a good example of this, if you remember, I'm going to get a little more detailed into this this morning, but a good example of this is, is found in the book of Genesis. And, and I, I, I alluded to this last week because in the book of Genesis, we have the creation account told in Genesis chapter 1. And in Genesis chapter 1, we know that God on day 1, God on day 2, God on day 3, right? We have the creation account as told by the seven days of creation. And whether you believe that to be literal or not is not the point of the discussion this morning. The point is, is that it's told in this way. Then starting in verse 4 of chapter 2, okay, the creation account is retold. And in verse 4, quote-unquote, it says this, it's told as the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in that day the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And as a result, it goes on, and the focus as it goes on is then put on mankind. It's not put on the birds of the air. It's not put on the, the fish of the sea. It's not put on the stars in the heaven. It's put on one thing, Mankind, one aspect of creation. And the story's retold as the focus is put on mankind in order that the main point of man and his relationship with God, specifically how it was broken, because it's the story of the beginning of all things. How did we get to the place where we were at? How did we get to the place where we are with this, with this fallen and separation state that we are in from God, it tells how that relationship was broken, but it also tells of how it was restored. Furthermore, the second reason for why chapters 6 and 7 appear to be a summary account of the seven years of tribulation, which will be told again in detail from chapters 8 through 18, is due to the fact, okay, this isn't just something that I, I, I believe because I believe it. I want to give you biblical reasons. You can come up with your own understanding. You can use the things that I'm giving you and research it on your own, and I would challenge you to do so. But the other reason for why is because in Matthew chapter 24, in verses 4 through 26, Jesus is speaking. And when Jesus is speaking in this chapter, he, he, is, he is talking to his disciples. He's specifically answering questions that his disciples had asked him about his second coming and also about the end of the age, when these things will come to pass. And in doing so, Jesus specifically accounts when you look through his response, seven things. He accounts for seven things that are going to be a sign of the end of the age, are going to be coming to pass before a second coming, in other words. And the first thing that Jesus speaks about is false Christ. 
The second things that he talks about is wars, famines, deaths, martyrs, and worldwide chaos. And then ultimately at the very end, Jesus speaks and tells of witnesses that will go forth preaching the gospel to the whole earth, he says, right before the end comes. And man, you can't make this up. Because when you come to Revelation chapter 6 and chapter, in chapter 7 and you look at the seven seals be open, these seven things that Jesus foretold of exactly parallel the opening of the seven seals. Exactly. Now if you were here last week, you heard me point these things out and it may seem a little redundant. I'm, I'm sorry for that. However, it's important to be reminded of this before we continue on because what a person believes about the opening of the seven seals will greatly influence what they believe about where the church is at at this time. And I know that this statement calls for further explanation, but for now I just want to say this. I believe the Bible clearly teaches us that the church will be in heaven at this time, that these aren't a set of events that the church are going to be going through, and then somewhere around chapter 8, we're taken out of here. That's not what the Bible, I believe, teaches us. And, 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 and rather than get into the discussion of all that, I just want to point out this one important fact. This is really what it all boils down to me for, for us this morning. Because in light of all this, as we go on, this is a reminder for us that you and I need to be expectantly waiting and looking for the coming of our Savior. That's who we're looking for. That's what we're keeping our eyes and our thoughts upon. Because Jesus is coming back. And he's coming in the back at a time when no man knows. The day or the hour. And he, it tells us that he's going to snatch us out of here. Before the wrath of God is released. Because... We've not been appointed to wrath. And with that being said, and because we've not been appointed wrath, because Jesus Christ upon the cross took all of the wrath that you and I deserved. He took it all. So with that being said, we read here in verse 7 about the opening of the third seal. And if you'll follow along with me, it says in verse six or chapter 6, verse 7, it says, When he opened the fourth seal... I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, come and see. And again, these are the, the, the mighty angels that are in the throne room of God. And, and so the fourth living creature now speaks with the opening of this fourth seal. And he says, come and see. And so I looked and beheld a pale horse. Now I've seen pale horses and, and they're kind of pretty, but this isn't the same kind of pale. I'm going to tell you that right now. And I'll talk to you about that. And the name of him who sat on it was death. And Hades followed with him. And power was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and by the beasts of the earth. Let's pray. Father, I pray, God, as we continue on through your word, God, that you would soften our hearts. Father, that we would be willing to hear, to listen, to receive what you have to speak to us this morning, God. You know where each one of us are at. You know what's going on in our lives. And Lord, ultimately, as you make these things known to us, it's not because um, we need to be afraid. It's because we can um, know what's coming and rest assured, Father, that our hope is in you. That you've saved us from this wrath and from this judgment that's to come. And furthermore, God, I know that you've making these things known to us, God, so that we would... Um, be passionate 
that we would be fervent about telling those who have yet not put their hope in you, of you, to, to tell them of, of your great love for them. Father, as we see the end drawing near, even those, Lord, who don't profess a belief in you, look and see that things are changing rapidly, and it's changing not for the better, but for the worse. And Father, as they look to, to, to prep and to uh, store and, and, and try to endure this time that's ahead, Father, help us to tell them and to show them that none of the things that they can do will help him when this time comes. That only you, Father, are our hope. Only you are our salvation. Only you can redeem what has been lost. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, in these verses here we read of the fourth seal, the opening of the fourth seal, which results in one-fourth, it says, the being in power over one-fourth of the earth. And literally what that means is that one-fourth of the earth's population is going to be destroyed. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing. And I mean, we can glance right over that and, 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 and we can even go, well, we're not going to be here. But you know what? Your heart should be grieved. Our hearts should be grieved when we think about just the number that that might be of people, of our perhaps family members, of our loved ones, of our friends. When you hear this, your heart should be grieved. God's heart's grieved over this. God takes no pleasure in these things, the Bible tells us. And, and even though we know that up to this point with the opening of the, the, the two seals the, with the red horse and the, and, 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 and the black horse, is, even though we know that there's going to be a loss of life from those two opening of the opening of those two seals, it's hard to tell exactly how many people this one-fourth is, but I want to do this with you. You take the current population of the earth today, which is about 7.3 billion people, okay? If you take that number and you divide it by four, we know that by the end of this fourth seal, okay, maybe not just in this one seal uh, judgment, but, but, uh, or the judgments that come alongside this, the opening of this seal, um, is, is, is even if there's been deaths before then and, and the population of the earth sustains or grows until whenever this takes place, if you take that number, the number that we know, one-fourth of 7.3 billion is 1.825 billion people. And you go, well, that's a lot because I certainly don't have near enough of that amount of money. And, and, and usually that's how we relate to millions and billions as we think about the lottery and we go, ooh, billions and millions. But you can't, it's hard to wrap your mind around that number. It's, it's very, very hard to wrap your mind around that number. And this number, one, and to help you understand that, that 1.825 billion is equivalent to 1,825 million. Millions, excuse me. 1,825 millions. That's that's. 1.825 billion. And to, to keep in mind, keep this in mind that just 1 million is equal to a group of people, okay? It's if you take a, 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 a thousand groups of a thousand people, that's a million. Furthermore, when you combine this 1,825 million to the 
to the um, when you com- excuse me when you compare this 1,825 million people or the 1.825 billion, the one fourth of the world's Earth's population. When you compare that to the 130 million, right? 130 is a lot, but it's still a lot less than. 1,825 million, but that number, 130 million, is the total amount of people that were killed in both world wars. And you think, wow, that's a lot. Both world wars. 130 million. And 1,825 million will be murdered or put to death or killed in war or famines or whatever by the time this writer is, this fourth writer is done. And it's a staggering amount. And it's almost inconceivable, I think, for us to wrap our minds around this. Now, when we are told that the horse John saw with the opening of this fourth seal was a pale horse or color in pale, we should take notice. And we should take notice because the Greek word that is used here to describe this color pale is the word chloros. That's the Greek word. And in the Hebrew, it is the word... um, Where did I put that? Uh, I can't pronounce it very well. Your akrak, okay? I think that's how you pronounce it. But it's the word yakrak, and more important than how you pronounce it is the fact that it's used only one other time in Scripture. Only one other time in Scripture is this exact word used, translated from the Greek to the Hebrew, and it's in Leviticus Leviticus chapter 13, verse 47. And that word, that yakrak, is is used to describe specifically the greenish pale color of leprosy. How about that for a gross-looking horse? But it gives us this idea of what's going on. And the point is, is the horse is not a pretty horse. And we see, even as death ride on it, that this horse carrying death will take life. And when we are told, this this is even more devastating when you read which follows, because we told, not only will this horse take life and this rider take life, one fourth of the world's population, you know, perhaps 1,825 million people, we see that with Haiti following, we're told that the souls of those who will die, the part of us that, 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 that lives on once the physical body perishes, that these souls will be taken to the place of torment. It's not the Son of God who comes for them, it's Hades. Now, when some people consider that one-fourth of the earth's population is lost when this fourth seal is open, they figure that it cannot be true, especially in the years past, before modern warfare. They think, how is that even possible? When they go, well, that must be figurative, not literal. And, 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 and I believe it to be literal, considering... Um, many things. But most people also look at the fact that historians, if you study this out, they estimate the death toll for the world's 10 most deadliest wars, including World War I and World War II, where we have 130 million people estimated to have died in those two world wars. If you take 10 
all ten of the top deadliest wars of the whole world, they only add up to 285 million people. This is through recorded history, all the way back through the, 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 to, to, to even some of the um, Chinese uh, dynasty kind of wars and things that were going on. And um, even though this is a significant number, 285 million, it's nowhere close to the 1.825 billion that appear to die here as a result of this fourth seal being opened. But here in chapter 8, or in verse 8, if you look there, we are told that when this fourth seal is open, death will come in by four ways, okay? Death will come by, by four ways, either by sword, which is violence or war, by hunger, meaning famine, and usually famine follows war or violence on a global scale. Also, um, uh, death, literally what that means is like people dialing from from um, uh, disease or, or, or natural causes in that sense that, that uh, where the physical body is attacked by disease or, or infections or injuries. But also we're told that, that, these, that many of these people will die from, as a result of the beasts of the earth. Now, people die because of lion attacks and bear attacks and those kinds of things, but the number is so small, it's not even reported in a percentage right now, but yet this is included in this one-fourth as a way by people will die at this time. And really what it is, is a really gruesome picture for us when we see that even the wild beasts of the earth are going to be so hungry that they will openly begin to prey on mankind, and a significant death toll will result as it. One other thing to consider is that the weapons of modern-day warfare are more deadly than they have ever been, right? In World War II, the estimated death toll of World War II was, at the most, they say, around 80 million. Now, I don't know how they come up with these numbers. I'm just reporting what the, what the experts uh, say in regards to statistics, but 80 million people are estimated to have died in World War II. And we know that for the first time ever in World War II, a certain weapon was used. Anybody have a clue? What? Nuclear bomb, that's correct. Nuclear weapons were used for the first time. And let me give you some information. A nuclear bomb's yield or ability to destroy, it's rated in tonnage, Okay. And this is where if you were to take one ton of TNT, that's the scale in which it's measured, you take one ton, 2,000 pounds of TNT, that, 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 this, this rating is where you take one ton of TNT, and this one ton of TNT is the scale by which you go, go by because it's the replicated blast effect of the nuclear weapon, and it's measured on that scale. And on August 6, 1945, the United States of America dropped the first atom bomb on Hiroshima. And then on August 9th of the same year, three days later, we dropped the second atom bomb on Nagasaki. Both bombs had a yield of somewhere around 21,000 tons of TNT. And the estimated death toll from the initial blast of this one bomb between the two cities was 150,000 people. Or excuse me, that was, um, that was of the first bomb in Hiroshima, 150,000 people. And the second bomb that was dropped in Nagasaki was estimated to have instantly killed 75,000 people. 
This was a quarter of a million people with just two bombs. And this number doesn't even include all the others who died from the radioactive fallout in the days and weeks and months that came and followed. But the thing to consider is that modern-day nuclear weaponry is far superior when it comes to killing. The atom bomb is nothing compared to the modern-day nuclear bomb that we refer to as the hydrogen bomb. In that, a single hydrogen bomb has at least 10 times the yield rating that the first bomb ever had. Meaning that the smallest hydrogen bombs that are made today have a blast power of over 200 kilotons. And it is estimated that if a hydrogen bomb of this size, the smallest ones that are made today or or are in store today, if they had been dropped on Hiroshima instead of the atom bomb, the, the death toll from that one blast alone would have equaled more than 690,000 people. That's as many as five times as with the atom bomb. Now the point is, with all this modern military weaponry, it's very possible, very literal, for one-fourth of the Earth's population to be killed off pretty quickly. But as we consider these future events and these times that we are living in today, okay, where does this really relate to you and I? What do we do with this information, right? I'm just, you just don't want the, this isn't just about God going, look what's coming, doom and gloom. It's not about moving us to fear. But I want to, I want to illustrate what this is all about, what this needs to do by quoting to you from a man Named Omar Bradley, General N. Bradley, Omar Bradley. He served in birth both world wars, World War I and World War II. And he said this listen closely. We have too many men, we have too many men of science and too few men of God. Now think about this. This man was leading the United States armed forces the arm, on the, on the, in the army. He was the leader of the army at the time when these nuclear bombs were dropped. And this is his quote. We have too many men of science and too few men of God. We have grasped the mystery of the Adam and we have, reje- we have rejected the Sermon on the Mount. The world has achieved brilliance without wisdom. Power without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. We know more about war than we know about peace. More about killing than we know about living. You see, the bottom line is, the world that we live in, I don't think there would anybody here that would disagree that the world that we live in today is, is, is ripe for judgment. We look around and we see atrocities, we see the darkness, we see the innocent being perpetrated against by evil, we see the injustice in our court systems, and we look around and we go, it's not right. Believer and unbeliever alike look around and we go, it's not right, 
And we as believers, we see the world and we go, it's ripe for judgment. And truly we go, the world is without excuse. In other words, we are guilty. That's what this general was saying. We are guilty. But we have been taught and we have been shown a better way. We have been taught and we have been shown a better way, yet many not only ignore what Jesus exampled for us, they also reject Jesus, and for this, God will judge the earth. But we know that God delays. Many people, as you well know, go, if God was a loving God, why does He allow for these things to go on? And we know that God is a loving God. We know that He's a just God. But He's a merciful God. He's a long-suffering God. And God delays these things that we're reading about here because He is waiting for people to turn to Him. He is desiring that we, the church, would be His witnesses so that people would escape what is coming. That they would believe in His Son like we have and be saved from what is sure to come. In verse 9, we read on here in chapter 6. And it says, And when He opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the Word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until You judge and avenge our blood on those who who dwell on the earth. And then verse 11, a white robe was given to each of them, and it was said to them that they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and the brethren who who would be killed as they were was complete. And again, I pointed this out last week when I read verse 11 to you. Don't mistake this as if God is has appointed a certain amount of people to die for him during this tribulation period of time. Those who come to faith and those who are put to death for their faith. You know, lots of people say, well, I'll just wait. If I miss Jesus' return, if you're right, preacher man, if you're right about this Jesus coming back unexpectedly and I'm left behind, then I will know that you are right and then I will come to believe. But the truth is, is those who give their faith after the church is gone and they go through this, they will do so to their own death. Suffering the death of a martyr. And if you choose to do that, may God be with you to stand during that time. But it would be better to be in heaven with the Son of God, with God the Father, with all the saints, and with all the angels, worshiping God in place of perfection when all this is going on. Where there is no sin, where there is no pain, where there is a joy forevermore. And so God tells of this number not because He has a certain amount of of those who must die for His name. He tells of this number, of this amount, because it's an indication to us, it's a reminder to us that God knows everything about us. Not one will be lost, Jesus said. He keeps his watchful eye on every one. The Bible says he knows even the number of hairs upon our head. He cares about us. He loves us. And when we read that this fifth seal was opened, we now told that there's no horse that was sent out, but we see 
or, 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 or we see that, that with this vision that John had with this fifth seal, there were these martyrs, those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And more important than when what John saw in the opening of the seal, I think is what he heard as he heard the voices of those who had been slain crying out for the judgment of God. Now this may seem a little odd to us, considering that we, if you even go back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what are we told to do for those who revile us? for those who persecute us, for those who do evil to us. Do we call out for the judgment of God? Is that what Jesus said to do? No, he said, pray for them. He said, do good to them. Love them. But things changed here, and it seems a little, a little odd considering we, the saints in this age, have been clearly told to pray for those who persecuted us. And not only have we been told that, this was the example that Jesus gave to us with his own life. But during this period of time that we are reading about here, we know that it'll be a time of judgment. It'll be a time of God's wrath being poured out. It'll be time when God is answering the prayers of his people for deliverance and vengeance. And because God is judging, because his hand has been held back and all the wrath and the judgment of God that the earth deserves is being poured out upon the world, we see ultimately that the martyrs at this time are truly praying in the will of God. Because that's the will of God for that time. Because God's a just God. Because God's a righteous God. Yes, he's gracious and he's merciful and he's long-suffering. But there does come a time when God will execute righteousness when he will bring forth justice. And in verse 12, we read on of this chapter to close it out. And John says, And I looked when he opened the sixth seal. And behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair. And the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth and as, as when fig trees drop its late figs when it shakes by a mighty wind. And the sky receded as a scroll when it is rolled up. And every mountain and island was moved out of its place. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave, and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the what? The wrath of of the Lamb. For the great day of His wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now this passage, I'm just going to give you some other verses to look at, okay? I'm not going to go through them all. So if you're taking notes, I'll try to go slow enough for you to write them down. I've been accused of going too fast, and you guys come up afterwards. Now what was that? So parallel passages that are, 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 are um, um, similar to what we read here, or parallel passages to the events that we read here, are recorded in Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 26. Also in the Old Testament, in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 30 through 31. And again in chapter 3, verse 15. And then, in, in also Old Testament, in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 13, Verses 9 and 10. 
And then lastly, or in addition, Isaiah chapter 34, verses 2 through 4. And with this sixth, sixth seal, there is the record of a great earthquake. And when you study out through the book of Revelation, in total there are three great earthquakes that are mentioned. And there is no doubt that these will be literal earthquakes, but along with them we see these phenomenons, these disturbances that are taking place on the earth and in heaven. Can you imagine the, the, the sky being rolled back like a scroll? And what that's referring to is it's, it's being rolled back in the realm that which we live in, this physical realm with which in we live in, is going to be peeled back so that you can see into the spiritual realm, this realm that we yet cannot see. And I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty freaky to me because any time in the Old Testament when you read of godly men being confronted by supernatural beings, they say they fall down upon their face like they are dead men. It's going to be terrifying. It's going to be frightening. And both the great and the small, it says, whether you're a king or a slave, you will be afraid. And there are some who think that these verses describe the results of of the atomic warfare that we've been describing with the sun and the moon being blacked out and great land masses being moved and people hiding in holes in the ground, they say, to escape the atomic radiation. And you know what, this may all be true, but I want to point out this one thing as we close. We need to note that people here, they are not hiding from some man-made catastrophe. Who are they hiding from? And from his what? His wrath. If the worship team wants to come up, I want to close with these three things. And then we'll have this time of prayer. The first thing that we need to go away with this morning from this study is that Jesus' return is eminent. It's eminent. And we, the church, need to be looking for His return. The second thing that you need to know is that God has made a way to escape this wrath that people will be hiding from, the wrath that we deserve. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17, it says, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, meaning those who have believed and have physically died already. He says, They will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And the reason for why this happens is in verse 9 of chapter 5 of the book of Thessalonians also just a little ways down it says for God did not appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The last thing that I want to leave you with this morning please hear this. God is patient. He's patient with us. And He's long-suffering. And His desire is that people would believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, repent of their sins, meaning turn away and turn to following after Jesus and be saved. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter writes about this and he says, he says, basically he's saying, listen, if you think God's kind of wishy-washy about 
the judgment that he says is to come. He says, you've mistaken. Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but he is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And again, in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, verse 11, God speaks to Ezekiel and he says, Say to them, say to them, Ezekiel. He says, as the Lord lives, says the Lord God, as I live, I have no pleasure in the death of even the wicked. But that the wicked would turn from his ways and live. And then the Lord pleads as he makes this statement, God, the Almighty, the creator of the heaven and the earth, pleads with this man that he's created, that has rejected him, that has turned from him, that has chosen evil instead of the love of God. And God says, turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Father, I pray, God, that if there's anyone here, Lord, who's on the fence, who is uncertain about their walk and their relationship with you, I pray, God, that they would not go from this place without having made this decision and settled in their heart that there is no other options, no other plan, no other way apart from you. I pray, God, as things unfold around us in, this world, in the world that we live on, on a global scale, as, as things play out just the way that you have said that they are going to, and we see that happening right before our very eyes now, I pray, God, that you would help us to stay focused on eternity, keeping our eyes looking for your return, but more importantly, God, that we would be witnesses for you. Lord, that we would share so that people might escape the wrath to come, so that they don't have to hide from you, but yet that they may live in joy and peace in your presence. Father, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to do last couple songs of worship. If you guys want to turn the lights down, the gentlemen are going to come forward. And if you need prayer for anything, for healing, for others, for salvation, for friends and family members,